0: Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years, you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless, but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor Podcast, brought to you by The Herald.
1: Today. In terms of driving up vaccines, I think a positive incentive would be more useful than some sort of negative administration of a passport system.
2: Nightclubs and pubs in these places are places of work. And we need to do as much as we can to protect the people that are working in these environments as well.
3: Bringing in the UK armed forces uh, to help back up the ambulance service is what most reasonable people would recognise as as a crisis.
2: I'm sorry, but Scotland can't mitigate for every bad decision that's done in Westminster. They need to do the right
0: thing in this. Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Big welcome to my latest Herald podcast. Bring in the army. That's one response as... Scotland's ambulance services are struggling to cope, and today the Herald spotlighted a tragic case where a patient died while waiting. And waiting it all added up to extremely tough questions indeed for the First Minister. At Holyrood, we'll mull over those issues now with three senior MSPs: Claire Adamson from the SNP, Oliver Mundell from the Conservatives, and Paul Sweeney from Labour. Delighted to welcome all three. But first, let's hear from my Herald colleague, uh, Alistair Grant. Alistair, they remind us of that. First of all, that Herald story and the issue that it exemplifies that was raised with the, the First Minister. Yes,
4: yeah, so as you say, there's a story on the front page of the, uh, the Herald today, written by my colleague Helen McArdle, the Herald's health correspondent, um, about 65 year old Gerard Brown who, from Glasgow, who died following a 40 hour wait for an ambulance after being found collapsed at his home. Um, and His family were told by Mr. Brown's GP that the delay essentially cost Mr. Brown his life. Uh, the GP branded the crisis facing the ambulance service. Uh, third-world medicine. Uh, Probably worth saying there's an investigation into this underway at the moment as well. And just to highlight, there's a similar story in the front page of today's Daily Record uh, with Lillian Briggs, 86-year-old, who I think waited almost eight hours for an ambulance while in a a great deal of pain. Um, As you say as well, it was raised by both Douglas Ross, the Scottish Tory leader, and Anna Sarwar, Scottish Labour leader, um, at FMQs today. And Nicola Sturgeon, very clear that the, the circumstances were unacceptable. As you touched on as well, saying the Scottish government is looking at requesting what she called targeted military assistance for the ambulance yep. service. And I think it's worth seeing as well, it was one of those FMQs where when Douglas Ross first brought it up, there's just absolute silence in the chamber, just that kind of feeling of a very, very heavy atmosphere. And I think just looking at Hamza Yusuf, the health secretary's body language, I think it was quite uncomfortable for him and for the government as well. Uh, and it's also worth seeing that it comes after Hamza Yusuf said that people should uh, think twice about phoning an ambulance. Phoning nine 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 just because of the the pressures, the acute pressures the ambulance service is under at the moment.
0: Alison, thanks very much. We'll come back to you in, in a moment. As you say, a very sombre session of questions to the first minister. I think Alex Cole Hamilton for the Liberal Democrats raised the the, t- the topic as well. Let, let's go. Let, we'll talk about the, the Hamza Yusuf thing in a minute, but let's talk about those those figures, the situation generally. Claire Adamson, first of all, this was difficult for the first minister to say the least, and she didn't make any attempt to say that the the situation was anything other than challenging and required to be remedied.
2: no No, and I think that's absolutely right to do so, in my condolences to the Brown family and other people who have been affected by this. Um, it's absolutely right that the First Minister um, apologised for what has happened and, made, and absolutely emphasise that this is not acceptable and we we'll have to wait the outcome of the investigations that are going on to these um, particular incidents that were highlighted today. Um, I think it, it does re-emphasise to us though that COVID has not gone away, that the challenges and pressures on our health centre on our health services are at, at, at really, really high level. And as someone who attended an NHS briefing on the 3rd of September and listened to NHS Lanarkshire then talking about how difficult it was, and I was facing my constituents not having elected surgery or not being able to get anything other than emergency social care. The virus is still here and that's why we need to do everything in our arsenal to try and keep this under control, encourage vaccination and continue to be as, as thoughtful about our daily lives as possible and the pressures and the impacts of what we do have on other people. Let's go to Oliver. Oliver Mandel from the Conservatives. What, what, what do you
0: make of what you heard from the, the First Minister and what you've just heard from Claire Adamson? I mean, is is there a pre-existing problem that, that's adding to the difficulties? There's,
3: there's been problems in the Scottish Ambulance Service uh, for years, and obviously uh, no one's denying that COVID is adding to those pressures, uh, but there's been warning signs for months. I've had a GP in my own constituency in touch saying that he struggled to get an ambulance uh, for a patient, a case Douglas Ross referenced last week. Um, and I think you know, the, the First Minister kind of tiptoed uh, round an apology. She tiptoed around uh, you know, the, the kind of I, you know, the, the, the wording you know, trying to trying to, to deny there was a crisis. I, but you, know, I think the whole service is at breaking point, uh, and it shouldn't have taken a week uh, to be looking at bringing in the, the UK armed forces. We should have be been looking for those solutions last week. Uh,
0: but, but she didn't. She didn't. Uh, she, she apologized, I thought, fully and frankly about the, the individual, in individual cases. But she case. wasn't.
3: She, she wasn't really willing to to to, to, to recognise that you we know, we are at crisis point. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think she, 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 she you know, she, she, she talked about what language she did and didn't want to use. But I think the, the most straightforward thing, when we see stories like we saw in the Herald this morning, you know, is, is to admit we, we have hit crisis point. Um, bringing in the UK armed forces uh, to help back up the ambulance service you know, is what most reasonable people would recognise as, as, as a crisis. Um, and, you know, we, we've got to, got to get this problem sorted quickly uh, or, or more lives are going to be lost. Clare Adamson, you were keen to get
2: back I, I think the Conservatives have to be really careful about their attitude to this, because on one, they're facing both ways on this. On one hand, they're saying the NHS is at crisis and, and services are at are, 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 are an extremely difficult level. They are, but at the same time, they are trying to um, act and press as if COVID is going away. Um, the motion this week about GP services and an arbitrary date to return to what they were saying was normal, face-to-face practices when the NHS have been, and GP surgeries have been working flat out throughout this crisis with measures there intended to protect the public and limit the spread of this disease. Now, I, not a single Tory attended the briefing from the NHS Lanarkshire three weeks ago, and in that we were told, we were shown graphs of how in the third wave, fewer people are dying from the virus and it's much lower than before because of vaccines. So what did the Scottish government do under these pressures? They introduce a vaccine passport designed to limit the spread of the disease yet again, and the Tories vote against it, and then they are now saying we should do more. But it's, they can't face both ways up there. They should be get behind the measures that the Scottish government is taking to control the virus and ease that pressure on our health service we'll instead about- of adding to it.
0: We'll talk, talk about passports in a moment, but, but let, let's stick with the, 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 I understand that they're interconnected. We will definitely come to that. Oliver Wundell, the, 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 the Nicholas Sturgeon said she didn't want to trade language, didn't want to trade um, uh, talks about, about language. She would rather sort the problem than, than you know, discuss what the, the terminology was.
3: And I would be willing to accept that, Brian, if, if there have been signs uh, that uh, Nicholas Sturgeon and, and the Health Secretary have been trying to solve the problems. This issue was raised a week ago, um, and today, in the course of, of FMQs, we heard in our first answer to Douglas Ross that she was considering uh, asking the UK Armed Forces for help. By the time we got to Anna Sarwar, uh, it seemed a bit more definite. And by the time she got to uh, Alex Cole-Hamilton, she was away to make the request straight after the session. It just seems uh, on this issue and on so many issues, uh, the Scottish Government are reactive. We're uh, 18 months into the pandemic. We, knew, uh, we We knew these issues were building. Um, and they've acted, in, in my view, uh, too slowly. They're not listening to the unions. They're not listening to frontline staff. They're not listening to uh, opposition politicians. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I think we need to uh, get real and, and, and accept we are at crisis point, and that requires a different type of uh, that requires a different type of response. And that language, I think, does up the urgency uh, to get things sorted and these pressures in the system. And I'd say to Claire Adamson, uh, I've been more willing to accept. Uh, You know, the the type of argument she was trying to make, if if the Scottish government got the test uh, and protect service uh, working efficiently, uh, because alongside vaccination, the most important thing we can do uh, to to suppress the virus and keep numbers down is take positive cases out of circulation. um, And some of these measures that she talks about uh, wouldn't be necessary uh, or even being considered if if that was working well. Thanks for
0: that. Uh, let, Let Claire answer that and then we'll try and bring Paul in. Claire, please carry on.
2: That was not the message that I took from the NHS Lancashire briefing. It was it was the vaccine effect. We have to encourage more people to take the vaccine, and we know that the people that are now presenting in the hospital are a different demographic from the first and second wave, and we have to do everything we can to encourage people to have the vaccine.
3: Yeah, I agree. We have to encourage them. We have to we have to encourage them to have the vaccine, but not force them. I don't think anyone should be forced. We should be making a reasoned case. Uh, to young people, and I would urge anyone listening to this, if you've not been vaccinated, uh, go and get it done. It makes a big difference to your health let's and the health of others. Try and,
0: let's try and bring in Paul Sweeney. Be very patient. I hope the technological problems have been overcome. Paul, what, what do you make of this controversy over the ambulance service? Anna Sauer suggesting that there was a, a problem that was exacerbated by COVID, not created by COVID.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think there's been a threadbare infrastructure that when the COVID pandemic hit, it's overwhelmed the system, and that's further exacerbated the problems. Um, certainly, I've had constituents coming to me in the last few days expressing their deep concerns. Indeed, there was one case um, of a constituent, uh, uh, Brian Snedden, who suffered a stroke on Tuesday last week, and um, he ended up uh, actually waiting over four hours for an ambulance. By the time he got to the hospital, the doctors ended up having to tell his son that, in fact, the stroke treatment that could have actually really improved his condition wasn't administerable after that four-hour window, so therefore he's going to face a, a lifelong disability as a result, and that's tragic. Absolutely outrageous to think that you know, people sit there at home thinking if, if the worst came to it, if I call an ambulance, I'm going to get someone coming urgently to help me if a life-threatening situation were to strike my family. Um, and to the horror of realising that that's not going to happen is, is really a rude awakening for a lot of people, and we really need to sort that out.
0: Presumably you, forgive me, presumably you accept that you know, we are dealing with a global pandemic that, is, that has killed millions around the world. These are not usual circumstances. These are, as the First Minister described them, exceptional circumstances.
1: Of course, yes. But the, the issue is it's all relative, isn't it? If your infrastructure isn't up to scratch.
0: Talk about infrastructure not being up to scratch. It seems we're living difficulty with infrastructure. Uh, Claire Adamson, let, let, let me come to you. Is, is the, the accusation made by Labour's Anasawa was that, um, that the, the, the First Minister had been in denial over this issue, had, had, had been denying the extent of the challenge facing the ambulance system?
2: No, I, I don't think that's the case at all and I do think there has been significant amount of work done with the unions to address some of the immediate concerns regarding the high status, the high um, uh, alert status that the ambulance service is on and the First Minister has been working with the service and I think that's the message from today is let's work together, let's work, let's do what we can, get the army involved, if required, work with the ambulance service and, and try to um, improve it as much as we can at this this state. No one has been sitting back and not paying attention. It's been the, the foremost interest of the First Minister throughout is how to deal with the, the COVID situation, how to protect our health service and how to ensure that, um, that they're not overwhelmed in a way that would, would be worse than we are at the moment. I can't emphasise enough; it's an extremely precarious s- situation for our health service, and we need to do all that we can to improve. So let's work together with the ambulance service and with the army to to put the solutions in place as quickly. As possible.
0: Oliver, Oliver Mundell, you're keen to come in. You
3: yeah, know, I, I would just say I'd, I'd be willing to to accept that there might some things might slip round the edges, but I think you know, when we're looking at the story that was both in the Herald and the Record today, and a number of examples that come from round the chamber. You know, once you're asking people to wait for hours and hours, having made a 999 call, um, you, know, you do have to accept you know, that something's gone very badly wrong. Um, and I, just, I, I, I don't feel uh, that we've seen the, the prioritisation of this issue uh, that, that people across the country would expect.
0: Let's try Paul Sweeney again. Paul, are you hearing me now? All oh, oh, the, the, the comments from Hamza Youssef, um, Nicola Sturgeon saying he was misinterpreted, it was misunderstood. But he did seem to be saying people should think twice before uh, going to the emergency option. What do you make of that?
2: Well, I think
1: it's beside the point because calls are handled on a triage basis anyway. So if you're going to be presenting with an issue that doesn't require an ambulance, the the operator would determine that anyway. So it's not about people, you know, it's just about not the helpline, the the 999 service rather than actually about ambulance demand. So I think that's beside the point. Um, the issue is actually at A&E's, we're not getting people out of ambulances into the hospital quick enough, so they're queuing up at the A&E's, so it's, it's, it's dragging on the service. Um, that is the main issue, and that's where the capacity problems are lying. So and well, that's the ambul-
0: the, the ambulance has whisked somebody to hospital. But then, then they sit there for ages and can't answer other calls. Is that right? Yes,
1: precisely. That's a major factor in the in the huge um, inefficiencies we're starting to experience, and it's that flow that's problematic. Um, so it's not necessarily about the ambulances themselves; it's actually the, the the impact they're having when they actually get to the hospital. So
0: presumably, then you would welcome this this statement from the first minister that there's going to be a look at at temporary admissions wards in in hospitals to try and remedy that problem.
1: Well, I think it's certainly a factor that we need to, to, to address, and that's, that's definitely welcome. But what I think was problematic today was the seeming lack of a sense of urgency, that we are going to wait for another week before we have further measures put in place. That's not good enough. We need a 24-hour um, sort of turnaround on this. It should be the only thing occupying the First Minister's attention today. And well, I would
0: I, I, to be fair, I, I, I didn't hear her say that. I, I heard her say that there would be a statement next week from Hamza Yusuf, but in the meantime, I think she said that it would be 24 hours a day. Efforts for, to try and remedy the situation.
1: Well, my impression was it was going to be that Parliament would uh, only be informed a week later, and there wasn't going to be the same sort of sense of urgency. So that was definitely the the, the uh, response from the chamber was that it wasn't good enough, okay. um, and I think that that is definitely a valid concern. And we need to have a much more rigorous approach to reporting on this issue. We need to have daily updates about what's going on to Parliament. Uh,
0: Alastair, Alastair Grant, that the, that's that the, those comments by Hamza Yusuf. W- w- was he misinterpreted, or or, or did he? he must speak. should he have chosen his words more more carefully? What's your, your call on that?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think, it's, I suppose it's kind of a it's almost like a political argument in terms of uh, I mean, he, he said what he said, and I think from his point of view, he was mirroring something the Scottish Ambulance Service themselves had said, I think in the past, where, you know, making people aware that the situation is acute, and only phoning 999 if it's an absolute, you know, it's an emergency, you need to go to A&E. Uh, but he did say it, and it seemed quite stark at the time. Uh, and I, I think as well, I mean, comments in the Chamber today from Nicola Sturgeon just I thought drove home the kind of the seriousness of the issue when she was talking about the winter coming up and it potentially being, you know, the most serious situation in terms of our health service that, that we've that we've ever seen, in, certainly in living memory. And I think if these issues exist now, when the weather, you know, is reasonably okay, then it's it's kind of worrying to look ahead and think about how these how these issues could get worse if uh, if action isn't taken immediately.
0: Oliver, what did you make of the comments by Hamza Yusuf The totally seemed to be suggesting perhaps he should consider his position, was it, was it as serious as that?
3: I think he should consider uh, apologising and, and stressing uh, that that's not what he meant uh, because it, it came across, I mean, I actually heard it uh, live on the, on the radio and, and it didn't sound good then. Um, and you know, I, I think it was quite clear from the First Minister's comments today that she didn't really want to uh, engage with that language. And it's not the first time in this pandemic uh, that uh, the Health Secretary done a very poor job of communicating with the public um, or given out information that, that, that wasn't, wasn't quite as it, uh, as, it, as it should have been. And I think there's an important message uh, there. Um, you know, people don't pick up 999 and dial an ambulance uh, for, for, for trivial reasons. Um, and as Paul has said, you know, I, I would suggest anyone who thinks they need an ambulance, you know, they, they, they should continue doing that. And the person at the end of the line will do their very best uh, to, to, to manage uh, the pressures that are clearly there within the system. Thanks.
0: Claire, Claire, what about the, the the comment of the "think twice" comment? Would, could he have expressed it better to be to put it at the, at the minimum?
2: I'll, I'll, I'm not going to speak for for having in this, but I think the message from the first minister was absolutely clear. If people feel they need an ambulance, they should dial 999 and they should do it. And I also point people to the ambulance service website itself, which tells you um, where to get help, what what reasons to call nine nine nine, and it has a list of of, of possible situations there and, and and I think what really is the crux of what, what Hamza's comments were about was is there someone else that you can seek help whether that's through primary care, through pharmacies, through minor injury units, if there's another option then if people can take that they should um, but that does not mean that anyone should not phone 999 if they are in desperate need for that service.
0: It, sound, it sounds from the, the the sounds in the background there as if somebody has perhaps dial nine nine nine. We're hearing the hearing the blues and twos in 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 the, in the distance. Uh, 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 thanks for that. I'm going to move on to another topic in a second. But I, I should have said earlier, um, the uh, if you you know that story that was in the Herald that was then raised in the chamber with the first minister. If you want to get all the Herald's coverage, you can subscribe to the Herald and you can use a, a little thing, a little device uh, by signing in as Herald Pod Twenty Twenty One, and you get a discount of. It's 20% That's it's a fifth off. Cold Pod 2021. Now, this is a, let's move to the topic of COVID passports. Bill Adamson and, and Oliver were talking a little bit about them earlier. We got evidence this morning from the Scottish Professional Football League and from nightclubs, basically from the Licensed Trade Association. Alistair, bring us up to speed with that. They were they weren't awfully happy, were they?
4: They certainly raised issues, yeah. I mean, just to just to go back. I mean, obviously the COVID passports were voted through Hollywood last week. Um, it's kind of doing party political lines so the greens and the SNP voted for them the lib dems labor and the tories voted against and essentially this will just mean that you know scots will have to show their vaccine certification for getting into nightclubs and, and large events and it's hugely controversial it's been controversial among politicians but it's also controversial among the people who have to be implementing these rules so yeah. we had evidence this morning from like you say the Scottish licensed trade association and the spfl and i think one of the things that the slta were saying which i thought was quite interesting was it's all around this kind of thorny, difficult issue of the, the definition of a nightclub, which we still yeah. don't have, because you can't just use the dictionary definition, it has to be specific in order to be enacted in, in, in legislation, essentially. Yeah. And this LTA, we were saying that essentially using the definition that they were saying the Scottish government is thinking about at the moment, you're talking about thousands, you know, 2000 venues around Scotland that would be, that would be hit by that. It wouldn't just be the, the couple of hundred or the hundred or so that self-identify as, as nightclubs.
0: Yeah, they were also talking, weren't they? I mean, both both that was Gavin Gavin Stevenson and Neil Doncaster from the Scottish Professional Football League saying they, they ain't got the stewards to, to do this at big grounds and, and there wouldn't be the time. And it could cost thousands to bring in bring in the, the staff. Th- thanks, Alistair, but hold, hold on, hold those thoughts for a second. Paul Sweeney, what what, what about this? I mean, it, it, OK, we hear about the practical problems and they're always feeding troubles bringing something in. But if it drives, you were saying earlier, you need to get young people to take the vaccine. If this drives young people to get the vaccine, to get the certificate, isn't it a good idea?
1: I don't think there's sufficient evidence to demonstrate that this particular measure drives up uh, vaccine uptake. I think what and we're doing... Tried
0: it. it hasn't been tried yet, so you,
1: you, well, you I not Well, I think there's evidence uh, around the world that this uh, so far doesn't demonstrate convincingly that it happens. Also, I think we need to look at alternative measures that are less labour-intensive and less inefficient. I think what we need to look at is perhaps positive alternatives. For example, why not offer people a small financial incentive to present for vaccination, for example? It would be very straightforward to add that into the current system.
0: What? The ones that have d- delayed and dithered and, and not got the vaccine get paid, and, and the ones that behaved themselves and got two vaccines get get, get nothing? Oh, that's really I don't think
1: it's a case of. I don't think it's a case of um, dithering. I think it's a case of young people who are last in the cohorts to go forward are, are needed a bit more positive encouragement. And indeed, you used to get a free pint of Guinness for day, a pint of blood. So I don't know why you can't get a, a, sli- a slight incentive to turn up to, um, to take up the vaccine. I think that might go something much more worthwhile, instead of pushing even more administrative burdens onto businesses that are already very fragile and suffer significant costs. And as well as a state with ex- limited bandwidth in terms of managing existing pressures on test and, tr- test and protect, which we already know is failing badly, uh, we need to actually reinforce the resources into those systems testing people, actually, which is more effective at suppressing the virus and so making sure people are being regularly tested. And that evidence is there. We know that the, just being double vaccinated doesn't make you immune from contracting the virus or being symptomatic or passing it on. So I think actually focusing our efforts on testing would increase our likelihood of suppression. And also in terms of driving up vaccines, I think a positive incentive would be more useful than some sort of negative administration of a passport system.
0: OK, Claire Adamson, do you, you think it's a good idea? I mean, your ministers were, were pretty sceptical before they introduced it. They, they, they almost had to convince themselves.
2: Well, I don't think so. I think it was always reserved as something that would be looked at going forward. And I think, the, um, in fact, the UK government have taken exactly that stance on it going forward. I think it is necessary. And I think if you yeah, look at they've the demographic. It,
0: they've, they've, they've dumped the plan as unworkable.
2: Well, I don't think it's unworkable. We've seen it um, applied in many EU countries. It is working and it is making an impact on controlling the virus. And I think when you look at, you know, we're talking now about people taking part in social events and everything, when we've just been talking about people who can't get elective surgery, who are delayed in health service, we have to look at the demographic of who's attending hospital. And we know it's, it's a lower age group. It's mainly people who haven't been vaccinated. And that's the pressure on the health service right now. And I will do anything I can to ensure that that happens. So there's obstacles to be overcome. There's wow. relationships to be built with with those who are going to be affected. But um, I, And there is a recovery plan that we need to look at for these businesses. But we have supported nightclubs uh, through through the culture funding that, in a way that they never received support before. And I think, you know, we have to also ask what's going to happen about furlough because furlough, is coming to an end. And many, many of these, these organisations have been dependent on that to, to get through the COVID crisis so far. So there's other issues that need to be addressed too about recovery for the, this industry.
0: On practicality, Neil Doncaster from football, from Scottish Professional Football League, he said there needed to be a light touch approach. But while Interpreting that, translating that, I think he means you're going to have to give us a break here. There isn't going to be a chance of, say there's a 30,000, 40,000 crowd, there isn't going to be a chance of checking all of their Documentation. It isn't going to happen. They'll they'll test, you know, maybe random sampling. Do you, do you accept in practice? In practice, that's what's going to happen. Or do you expect everyone going into a nightclub, everyone going into a big football game, to be to be uh, obliged to show these these uh, two tests at uh, two vaccination documentation?
2: I, I think it has to be dependent on the circumstance. So A nightclub, in my mind, is different from a football stadium. And the health secretary has said he's going to look at some of these options to okay. see can go through it and it's about working together all of us working together to come up with solutions that help us control this virus.
0: Oliver Mandel, the UK Conservative government looked very carefully at this and then drew back but you know is there some merit in something if it encourages people to take up a vaccination? Do you you fancy Paul Sweeney's idea of, of handing out some incentives?
3: I'm not so keen on that and certainly I know that many blood donors go along to get their uh, cup of tea and tunnex tea cake, they're not there uh, for the the Guinness and I I just think there's something uh, in that proposal, it was mentioned in the States, uh, I think they looked at at that there Um, and I think we've got to make a reasoned argument to people of why getting the vaccination is good for them and good for other people and I actually think the harder you push with some individuals Uh, The more it seems like the government's forcing people uh, to get vaccinated, the less likely they are to do that. And lots of the the, the scientific and uh, behaviour psychology uh, commentary supports that. So I I, I think it's about making it easy uh, for people to get vaccinated, getting mobile vaccination clinics out, about making it easy uh, for people, young people to get away from work, away from uh, college, away from uh, other things they might be doing and and, and really uh, pushing in that way. I think the, the numbers are
0: still not, you know, there's, there's still sizable numbers, not not huge, but sizable numbers. who are not getting vaccinated. They just don't seem to want to do it. Do you not have to have some sort of um, you know stick as well as well as the the, the carrot, Oliver? Then Paul. Well,
3: I, I I think you've 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 got to uh, make that that reasoned argument. I don't think uh, we're not we don't live in a country where uh, we, we do force people uh, to get vaccinated. Um, and I think we, we should recognise that and and, and, and uh, look at the, you know, as a positive. Uh, we've got a very high percentage of the adult population uh, vaccinated Um, and you know that's partly why i don't think that the vaccination passports uh, deliver exactly what uh, has been presented i I also think you as as you've pointed out in in this program as we've heard time and time again there hasn't been a lot of thinking about this the uk government uh, when they were considering this idea did a big consultation exercise they looked at uh, what people had to say about it clear talks about working together but these industries who are going to be most affected don't feel they had any communication with the government. No one was in touch with them in advance. And what they heard was the same as me, which was the Deputy First Minister responsible for the COVID recovery, going on the radio and telling people that this was a, a, a bad idea, that it wasn't a route we wanted to go down, um, and, and then going away for months and seemingly doing very little, then coming back to Parliament with a five-page document and, and asking MSPs to, to back something which... Um, has, has turned out to be half-baked and, and, and full of flaws. I don't think that that builds public trust, and I don't global, think it encourages vaccination.
0: This is a global pandemic. If you, if you can't adapt your ideas during a global pandemic, it, it, it ain't ever going to happen.
3: Well, I think you have to be open to, to ideas and properly work them through so that they don't have unintended consequences. And what the Scottish Government are very keen at doing is giving these sort of categorical positions... Um, and and then pushing ahead with something different. And it becomes very confusing for businesses, for members of the public. And all the time we've been spending talking about this is time that we haven't been focused on getting Test and Protect working. And as I said earlier, uh, the combination of encouraging people to get vaccinated and taking positive cases out of circulation is is the only way to drive down cases. And some of the measures that that are being suggested um, and and this particular proposal, I think will turn out to have counterintuitive uh, you consequences, oh, really? uh, and, won't, and, and I, I don't think it. I, I don't think it will deliver uh, the uptick in vaccination that, 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 that people hope for, uh, and it will. And it will.
0: Hold on Oliver. Are you saying you think it could make it worse rather than better? I
3: don't think it could make it worse because clearly, clearly, no one's going to get unvaccinated as a yeah. result of the vaccine passport. Yeah, but uh, it but it if it slows down the uptake, I, of... I, I, I think there'll be some. In, I think there'll be some individuals uh, who who will end up being you know. Being more resistant to being vaccinated if they feel they're being forced to do so and i think the best way to maximize the vaccine uptake as we've seen right the way through the adult population um, as we're now seeing with with young people um is to make the positive case uh, to help people understand the benefits the fact that getting vaccinated uh, reduces the risk of becoming seriously unwell it reduces the risk of hospitalization it allows us all to go back uh, to normal that the vaccine is very safe um, and is being used right around the world and that people shouldn't I put off getting vaccinated is the biggest thing they can do uh, t- to help everyone else.
0: Oliver, thanks, Paul. Paul, then Claire. If if we if we don't do this, or we are doing this, it's happening in Scotland. But if this doesn't necessarily work, what is it? Do we just persuade, cajole, Paul? What do we do, Claire? What do we do, Paul? First.
1: I mean, I started open-minded about this. I didn't come in with a fixed view about what the merits of it were. I listened to the arguments. I listened to the evidence. I wasn't convinced that this was the most effective and efficient means of delivering the outcome we, we all share, which is to get jags and arms as quickly as possible and to have comprehensive coverage of the population to reach herd immunity. We've successfully broken the link between death and, and contracting the virus because the vast majority of deaths have occurred in age groups, which are now pretty much entirely vaccinated. The issue is ill health and younger people who are unvaccinated. That's why we need to push that issue. And I'm not convinced that the vaccine passports will be the most effective means of doing it, especially given the finite resources available to the state. We're diverting manners out of things that need to be focused on, like test and protect, to run another layer of bureaucracy. What we could do is look at other examples. In the 1950s, Glasgow ran a very successful anti-TB x-ray program, and it did it very successfully by offering positive incentives, prizes, various other positive incentives to get chest x-rays to eliminate tuberculosis from Glasgow, which is one of the most effective public health campaigns in Scottish history. So let's actually learn from some of the examples we've done in the past to good effect.
0: What sort of prizes could you
1: get? I'm intrigued I by these want a, I think you want a fridge freezer or something. <laughs> oh, In the, 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 the council ward, they get the highest rate of uh, X-rays won special prizes for their local parks and things like that. So, oh, so, uh, nice. so there you go. Interesting but,
2: story.
0: But Claire, of, are, you, are you attracted by the idea of, you know, um, uh, all, all must win and all must have prizes?
2: Um, I'm I'm not so sure, and um, my uh, my godmother was actually a nurse at the time that took part in that, that that in Glasgow. But it's a long time ago. Um if I can make maybe make the comparison to um, the smoking ban in pubs, because what we've not talked about as as well is that nightclubs and pubs and these places are places of work, and we need to do as much as we can to protect the people that are working in these environments as well. And I think you know at that time that was controversial for all of those reasons. But we wouldn't think. To go back to a situation where someone in a nightclub is exposed to, to smoke in their workplace because it's less safe, and let's just think of the vaccine passports as making these places more safe.
0: Okay, let's. Th- thanks, to all, all three, and on that, I, I, I'm going to move on to uh, uh, the, the final topic for the for the discussion. Uh, thanks for that. we will just have to see how the vaccine passports work when they're, they're brought in. Uh, intriguing discussion there as well. New stats, Alistair, on, on the economy. We had the, the issue of the removal of the £20 temporary uplift to universal credit, but we had some stats on uh, the cost of living and inflation, stats on uh, growth rate in, in Scotland as well. If, if you've got those, I'd, I'd be grateful. Yeah, so
4: they were, they were kind of good news in a way. The you know, Scottish economy grew by, I think it was 4.7% quarter on quarter yeah. in the three months to June, and GDP was up by 21.7% on the same period of last year. So it's obviously good news. It's a sign that you know kind of lockdown has been easing, more kind of shops and businesses have been able to open. The economy is kind of recovering and getting getting closer back to normal. But I think it was interesting in uh, Finance Secretary Kate Forbes' statement when these figures yeah. were released, um, how kind of cautious it was. She, you know, she was obviously welcoming it, um, but also kind of noting that the the pandemic is not over and that you know challenges remain. There's some sectors. I think she mentioned uh, retail, tourism, yeah. hospitality. Where those obstacles to recovery are are still very much there. So although it's good news and although the economy is recovering, I think her message was, you know, it's not over yet. We've got got quite a long way to go.
0: Right, and then we have the inflation figures, uh, cost of living up three point two percent in the year to August, and we have that business of let's talk about the universal credit first of all. In that wider context, I want to bring in the everyone on the, on the wider economic question, Claire Adamson. The 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 twenty pound uplift to universal credit was always stated but it was temporary. Is it not reasonable in those circumstances? As, as the pandemic begins, you know, this too will pass. As the pandemic begins to pass, is it not reasonable to remove that, what, what was meant to be a temporary uplift to the universal credit?
2: Well, I, I would say temporary, but necessary and still necessary because, you know, people who are in receipt of this require that money um, just to meet ends meet. And we, we really can't go back to... To a situation where universal credit is not meeting people's needs and and it doesn't, we should keep the £20 uplift. People on universal credit, many of whom will be working, are now also going to be faced with the prospect of increased national insurance costs. And it's it's just the wrong thing to do at this time. And I, I think that we it really is a shame that the 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 calls from the sector, from the sector that support have been ignored by the Tory government, and we need to do this now. And I'm sorry, but Scotland can't mitigate for every bad decision that's done in Westminster. They need to do the right thing on this.
1: Paul Sweeney, what do you make of it? If I didn't have a £20 uplift over the last year, I'd have lost my flat. So from from a personal level, I know how vital this was to me. Um, And luckily, I had the escape route of obviously being elected. But for a lot of people, they are already in work. The, The vast majority, actually, of people who are on universal credit are either carers or people who are have dependents or there are people who are already in work but their work doesn't pay them enough to live a dignified quality of life. And indeed in Glasgow, the, the effect of the biggest welfare cut in the history of the welfare state overnight, this will cut a huge amount out of the system. This will rip 86 million pounds a year out of Glasgow's economy. That's a huge impact. We're talking about trying to encourage growth in the economy. You know, these are people who aren't going to be saving it in some, you know, Swiss bank account, they're going to be actually living hand to mouth, needing to spend every penny in the local economy. And that's what's the driver. If we're going to try and introduce stimulus to the economy, uh, to encourage growth, surely that's one of the better ways of doing it, to pump money into the welfare system, which can then flow into the wider economy. And indeed, even Crab admitted that as, as, as minister for this issue uh, a few years ago, tw- 2015, when this change was brought in, the welfare cap was originally designed, it was engineered to drive down the value of social security over time, so you recognise even from its starting position, it was already engineered to be inadequate, and the uplift was actually a way of correcting a historical error. So why would you then rip it back out again? It's just at every level, it makes no sense to me.
0: Oliver Mundell makes no sense, according to your critics there, that both Claire and and Paul.
3: Yeah, no, and I I hear what they've got to say, and I know that the families right across the country are hard pressed. I but. As you said in, in the opening, you know, this was designed to be a temporary measure uh, there at the height of the pandemic. And you know, I think we do have to consider whether you know, it, it's manageable in the long term. Um, and that, that's always about balancing, balancing uh, things out. Uh, you know, Claire mentioned the fact that, that, that taxes are going up. You know, we've we've uh, taken on an additional £400 uh, billion pounds worth of debt during the pandemic. Uh, this measure, uh, if made permanent, would cost an extra £6 billion pounds a year. And neither of these other parties will tell us where they want to find the money for that. Um, and I think we have to we, we, we have to think uh, about what's fair t- to everyone. Uh, you know, in the tax and, and welfare welfare balance. Um, and and I think that you know, we're at a point where uh, certainly the labour market's uh, strengthening. Um, you know there are, are early signs that the economy is starting to recover. And I think we're through in terms of the fa- not necessarily in terms of the health, uh, but hopefully we're through the kind of Financial uh you know sort of of crunch of, of, of the pandemic and, and, and hopefully I will continue to see things improve
0: if i if I may say I'll, I'll bring the others in, in a second and I will put that point to them about where they would find that funding but but if, if I may say so, Oliver, you don't sound exactly enthusiastic defending this this move. would you prefer no. it to have been deferred at the very
3: least I wouldn't have preferred it to be deferred no, I think this is the right time in an ideal world, Brian, I would have liked it to continue indefinitely. I would like you know there to be more support out there for everyone. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm not hiding from it. I, I think this is the right decision. Uh, I fully support uh, the, the UK government uh, in going ahead with it. And when I go back and speak to constituents uh, in Dumfrieshire, you know, I think most people recognise uh, that there is a need to balance uh, you know, balance uh, the, the kind of long term financial issues uh, and, and how uh, much support we can provide uh, through, through, the, through the welfare system. So I, I, I'm positive that the decision's been made now and I think it is the right
0: time. Claire, Claire Adamson, what about that point? You need to balance the requirements of those who are taxpayers, those who are national insurance payers, those who are in work, those who are on pensions. You have to. It, it, it is a question of balance.
2: No, it's a question of choice. Like, politics is all about choice and where you, you use your money and where you raise your money. And this has been all wrong. Um, Brexit has had a terrible effect on the country. And um, far from seeing, you know, all the millions of pounds that were to come to the NHS on the side of a bus, they're now raising taxes to fund social care and health. Uh, this has been handled so badly by the um, UK government. And we just need to look at, at the money squandered and PP op, op contracts that were dished out, you know, and, and the waste of money at the top. And the end, at the end of the day, they're making the poorest and most vulnerable people in our society. Pay for this. It's a matter of choice, not a matter of balance.
0: I'll bring, I'll bring in, Oliver, in a minute you were keen to come back in, but Paul Sweeney, what, what's your, your take on this? Where would you find, Oliver Middle challenges you and, and, and Claire, where would you find the estimated £6 billion cost of this project going forward? We're
1: back to the old fallacy of the household budget is the same as the national economy, and I'm afraid this doesn't work like that. You're actually in a vicious cycle by ripping like hundreds, of, if not billions of pounds out of the um, economy, um, you're actually going to drive down tax revenues. You're actually going to militate against the very thing you're trying to sort out. You know, so actually, by putting money in uh, to people who are always going to spend at the marginal propensity to consume is always higher amongst poorer income households, you're actually going to reinforce tax revenues. So that's actually a, a fallacious argument, in my opinion, uh, from an economic point of view. But also, let's look at the incidence. I agree, taxes will have to rise, but where is it falling on the population? We've actually seen the Conservatives introduce a tax it will disproportionately fall on those who are working families are already trying and struggling to meet ends meet, whilst billionaires, people who are earning their money from asset wealth, are, are actually getting a tax cut in effect. The level of income from billionaires and, and multimillionaires as a share of the overall national economy has massively increased over the pandemic, whilst people who are reliant on waged income and salaried income have seen that their share of the national wealth uh, squeezed and wages have stagnated for uh, over a decade now. And that's why so many people actually rely on universal credit. To and, up and you're, saying that's, you're saying that's
0: deliberate choice rather than accidental Absolutely. Output. The
1: Conservatives have obviously got their Effectively, people who donate to the Conservative Party are buying shares and developing public policy, and they're not going to do it in favour of people who are in a weak position in society. That's why, fundamentally, you have to go back to the choice about whose actions and whose interests are government figures acting in. And the Conservative Party, I'm afraid, always will act in the interest of their money donors. And that's just simply another permutation of how they do business in this country. And that's why, obviously, I am agitating for a Labour government at the earliest opportunity.
0: Oliver Mundell.
3: Yeah, I I was going to say, despite uh, all of that, uh, Brian, there's no sign from the polls that people in Scotland or across the UK are uh, joining Paul in in, in agitating for that Labour government. Um, And despite the difficult choices the Conservatives are taking to uh, increase tax revenue, uh, people by and large understand uh, why that needs to be done. Um, And I think that most people uh, will will look uh, at the balance of of these decisions and think that that this is the right time uh, to, to, to end what was a temporary payment Designed to support families during during the toughest uh, part of the pandemic, and I think that you know, people will have heard both those answers uh, and, and, and not really heard any specifics on how we' have to raise an extra uh, six, six billion pounds it, it's, it's all you know sort of circular, uh, sort of arguments and, and and kind of broad brush, but, but there's no practical suggestions on how we would raise uh, six billion pounds
0: We did hear Paul, Paul saying it, taking billions indeed possibly billions out of the economy through removing money from those who are on low incomes, who by definition of the having a relatively tight budget tend to spend that if they have additional cash, that that in itself will, will, uh, will undermine and, and, and cripple the, the economy. The, the, I, don't it, the it'll,
3: I don't think it will cripple the economy. It, it, you know, it may have, it, you know, the, the, the will be a, there will be an effect on, on spending, but I don't think I, you know, when the analysis is done, and I, you know, I, I don't have that to hand, but uh, when the analysis is done, I think that there's, there's more borrowing involved in in uh, continuing to make that payment, uh, then that would be then there would be in tax revenue gathered on the spending.
0: Let's go. From the, uh, let's when go inflation. Uh, hold on a, second, Paul, on a second. let Let's go. I'll bring it. Bring it back in a second. Oliver, let's go from the general to the particular. Do you accept that removing this this up uprating of twenty pound will cause hardship to individuals and to families around Scotland?
4: I
3: think it's accepting that even with this twenty pound payment, Brian, there are individuals and families in hardship in Scotland. I, I don't think it's the I don't think the twenty pounds in itself is is, is the cure all that it's sometimes presented as. I, I do accept. I do accept. I do accept. It'll make it worse. I do accept, I do accept that there'll be people who be who who will be in, in hardship. Yes, uh, but there are people in hardship uh, right now that are families who are, no, who are not eligible uh, for universal credit at all. Uh, who are in hardship, and I think the best way uh, to tackle that in the long term uh, is is uh, to see. Uh, Wages, wages go up to see a strengthening labour market uh, and, and, and people to be supported uh, into high-skilled, high-paid employment.
0: Almost out of time. Final comments, Paul Sweeney and then Claire Adamson. Paul Sweeney first.
1: Well, I just think it's, it's an it's a interesting insight to two alternative visions. One of another miserable decade of cutting austerity and a race to the bottom, whilst the people at the top of society get ever richer on their asset wealth. Or we can have an alternative vision where we share... Um, the, the recovery together by actually redistributing. I mean, we talked about the practicalities. Let's actually go for growth. Let's look at how we can invest in the economy. We need to push that money into the economy as we jump, job- as we move out of the pandemic and actually get things motoring again. The best way to do that is to use people to spend their money in the economy, and we can also take all that accumulated wealth from the highest income households in the country who will never spend it. I mean, goodness me, billion pounds to take a thousand years, a million pounds a year to spend, to earn that kind of money, it's just crazy amounts of money. We could actually harvest that surplus and use that to reinforce the public finances, as, as, you know, stamp duty, any number of different taxes on wealth, which have barely changed in 30, 40 years. We've focused so much on taxing income, not taxing wealth. That's got to be a fundamental reorientation of our economic tax base. That would be the key to doing it.
0: No right, time. Claire Gladaberson, I promise you a, a final word on this.
2: Well, I, I just think it, it's. I'm listening to all of it, and um, most of the levers around this are at Westminster. And if we just looked at the Fair Work agenda in itself, you know, a real living wage for people, an end to zero hours contracts, and exploitative employment practices, and business actually taking a, a more of a, a civic responsibility in looking after the staff and as Paul said, that would all help the economy in the long run. But it would it also would protect the most vulnerable people. In our country, and and all of you know, maybe would lift the phone to his friends in Westminster well, and them so to do you, something about that.
3: Could I'll come in very quickly. Well, very very brief. Uh-huh. I say, clear. I, I, I take that a lot more seriously. If, if your government practice what it preached it still counts positive destinations uh, as, as a successful outcome. If, sorry, zero hours contracts as a positive destination uh, for young people, um, and it doesn't use all of the powers it's got to to do these things. Uh, it, it tries at every turn to hide behind Westminster. Uh, and you know, people can see that for themselves.
0: Thanks to my three MSPs. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks to the three MSPs. Terrific discussion. Thanks to Alistair Grant for contributing and keeping us up 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 to speed. Uh, and to all of those uh, at home uh, uh, watching this, or whatever method or platform, I'm told. I have to say, um, the, the, thank you very much indeed. Remember that you, you can uh, subscribe to the Herald through that uh, that little thing. What's it Herald Pod 2021 from me, Brian Taylor, to Lutheran.
4: This podcast was brought to you by The Herald. Take 20% off an annual subscription to The Herald with our exclusive podcast code. Just add HeraldPod2021 to your basket and get instant unfiltered access to our website. And you can also get involved with the Brian Taylor podcast as well. Tune in on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube every Thursday afternoon to catch Brian and his panel chat live and ask your questions to the people across the political scene.